The passage this afternoon is from Romans 15 and can be found on page 10 of your bulletin or projected behind me. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Emily. Okay, uh, kids, I mentioned your Trinity Kids Bulletin earlier. You can grab that now and find the spot there to write down uh, these three things to listen for. Here's the first, new puppy. The second is uh, musical harmony. And then the third is uh, toy story. So new puppy, musical harmony, and Toy Story. And with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we look at this passage together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray, Lord, now that your spirit would work among us, O Lord, uh, that you might uh, unstop our ears, that you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts, that we may behold Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his beauty, that we would be drawn to him, that we would worship him, and that we would know him more today. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Uh, on Friday morning, uh, Wade Jewett knocked on my, uh, on my office door and said, sorry to interrupt, there's something you need to see right now, though. So uh, we walk out into the front of the office, and Courtney, his wife, is standing there holding their new eight-week-old puppy. It was totally worth it, okay? Um, uh, and the puppy's name is Murray, after Kyler Murray, even though it's a girl, which is totally on message for the Jewets with everything OU, right? Um, and so everybody is doing all the things that you do with a very cute eight-week-old puppy. And Wade starts telling me, though, that the story of how they uh, got this puppy, and it all happened in about a few days. So they found the puppy online, got really excited about it, and then got, came home and showed the kids all the pictures, um, which is great, except that then as he and Courtney talked more, they realized they needed to tap the brakes on it. The tough part then is that they had to go back to the kids and say, yeah, this really cute puppy you saw, that we're not getting that puppy. So uh, that's where things stood midweek. But then, uh, this is really great, uh, Wade and Courtney have this, uh, have this moment where they go, no, we're gonna do this. And so they end up going to get the puppy and then surprise the kids on Friday. But I want you to imagine for a moment um, what it had been like in the midst of this kind of roller coaster of expectations if the roller coaster had stopped at the bottom of the hill, which was when they weren't getting the puppy. And you can think about how hard that would have been for their kids, all because of the expectations that they had, that they were going to get the puppy, and then they didn't, right? That, that is a, it's a small and kind of fun picture because they got the puppy in the end, of the power of expectations and the experience that you have with unmet 
expectation. So let me, let me give a couple more serious examples. Uh, imagine uh, maybe you, you make a major job change and you do so because this new career that you're gonna enter into fits you so much better and you have all of this, these expectation that this job is going to be finally what you're looking for. But then you get into it and it's not at all what you had hoped. Or take, for example, marriage. You have all of these great expectations of what being married to this person that you deeply love is going to be. And then you marry the person and you begin living with that person and all of a sudden things aren't quite what you thought they were gonna be. Things are a lot harder in certain ways than you expected. And it's challenging because of the power of expectations. And that's true all over our lives, especially as I mentioned in those areas where they're unmet or where they're unrealistic. And in some cases that can be really dangerous, especially if you're unaware that you even have those expectations. And I mention that because I think one of the places where we are most prone to do this is with the church. We bring all kinds of expectations to what the church should be. And, and some of those are really good, appropriate expectations, but some of them aren't. And it can be the case that, that, that those kinds of expectations can arise from, from asking ourselves this question. What can this church do for me? What can I get from this church? What can I receive as I enter into this church? That's sometimes how these can arise. But other times though, the expectations arise because of previous experiences in other churches. It may be that, that God in his kindness worked in your life in a significant way when you were at a particular church in the past. And so you, you, you naturally have the expectation that this is what church should be. And the challenging part about that then is that uh, when a, a new church maybe doesn't meet those expectations, that's really hard. It's really disappointing. And it can put you in a, a spot where you're constantly disappointed because no church can live up to the, the very unique expectations that you now have. And I think that this, this conversation about expectations is a really important one for us to have right now because of all that we are about to enter into in the life of our church. So we're, we're at an exciting time. We just hired two fantastic new staff members and Pastor Andy and Emily as our uh, youth assistant. Um, we're, we're in a spot right now where God is bringing growth. There are new people in our church, which is really exciting. Um, maybe most significant of all, in terms of change, we're moving into a new building, right? Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. It's been raining a little bit, let the reader understand, okay? Um, in, in early 2023, right? And all of us rightly have all kinds of expectations for what life in this new building is gonna be for us as a church. We're aware of some of those expectations, but there are some of those expectations that, that, that we have that we're, we ourselves are unaware of right now, but that will be exposed at some point. And so uh, one of the reasons that, that we're looking at this particular passage in Romans today is that Paul's writing to a church that, that's made up of a lot of different people who are bringing a lot of different expectations to, to, to what their life together should look like. And so if you think back to the early church, you can imagine the sort of enthusiasm, the joy, and, and the excitement that they're experiencing as they hear this message, this gospel message about what Jesus has done. 
that, that Jesus, the true Messiah, the true son of David, the true king has come. And what he's done is he's, he's rescued his people and his world through his death and resurrection. And so they enter into this new life together as God's people. And all of a sudden they begin to realize that, wait a second, like some of these people here are really different from me, right? Like they are from crazy different backgrounds. Uh, that they, they, have, uh, they don't do things the way I do. And not only that, what I'm starting to see is that they're actually sinners. And the other thing that I start to notice is that I am a sinner, right? And this isn't as easy as I thought it would be. And so for, for the church to whom Paul's writing, the, the real point of tension is between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile or non-Jewish Christians, because they were coming from these places of drastically different backgrounds. And so we're gonna talk more about what those differences were. But the point here is that Paul sees these differences. He sees that the, the, in them also this potential danger. Because it's these kinds of differences that could result in, in a division that could tear the church apart. And so part of what he does here is he, he's writing to, to reframe their expectations for what life together is going to be like, for what life together in the church looks like, a life together that, that, that glorifies God. And he does this by, by calling them to, to what he says in verse 7, to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And that's what he calls us to as well. He calls us to, to embody this welcome of the gospel that he has extended to us. And as we do that, we actually, we, we, we cultivate and we maintain and we protect this gospel culture, the, the, the kind of culture that's produced when people believe the gospel together. And so that's what we're gonna look at today. And so this is the, the, the second week in our vision series as we're looking at the, the welcome of the gospel. And so part of what I want us to, to see today is that there could be things that Paul tells us about in this passage about the church that don't fit our expectations for the church. But what I want us to see is that what Jesus has for us in the church in reality is far better than what we ourselves could imagine. So here's how I want to uh, frame our time. I want us to ask and answer this question. How can we cultivate, maintain, and protect our gospel culture? Uh, and we're going to answer that three ways. Here's the first. We, may, we can cultivate, maintain, and protect our gospel culture by bearing with one another's weaknesses. So look back at verse 1. Paul says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. So we need to, to stop here and get a little bit of context to know what Paul means when he's talking about the strong and the weak. And so what Paul's done in Romans is for the, the last three chapters, he's talked about the life of God's people together. And actually, in, in two weeks, we're going to start a sermon series, in our fall series, which is going to be on the chapters of uh, Romans 12 to 16. And so we'll, we'll dig into this much more then. But just to set up this particular passage, what Paul has just done is he's talked about these differences of opinion and conviction that were swirling around within this church. And those questions revolved around, the, uh, around whether New Testament Christians we're obligated to observe these Jewish dietary laws and these Jewish holy days. Uh, and so, so uh, basically, these Jews who had put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah had become Christians, but they were still observing some of these Old Testament regulations. And then you have this whole other group who's converted from a non-Jewish background who weren't observing any of those laws at all. 
So quick point on this, though. We know from the book of Acts and from Paul's other letters that in the new covenant, Christians were not under any obligation to continue to observe those regulations. That, that those regulations served as a shadow and a type that pointed forward to Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled those laws, and so they're no longer in effect. Here's the thing, though. That was incredibly difficult for these new Jewish believers. And so what Paul's doing is he's riding into that disagreement. And so when he refers to the strong, he's actually talking about the Gentile Christians. He's talking about those who, who, for whom it was no violation of conscience to not observe these practices. Those who are called the weak are the Jewish Christians whose consciences wouldn't allow them to give up these practices. And so uh, another important thing to note here is that, that when Paul's talking about strong and, and weak, he's not talking here about a, a weakness of a commitment to Jesus. Neither is he talking about uh, some kind of weakness of character. He's talking about a weakness of conscience. And it's a weakness of conscience over these secondary, non-essential things. He's been super clear up to this point that, that all Christians agree and must believe these essentials, these basic truths of the gospel. And it's basically what he's been talking about uh, for the first eight chapters of Romans. All Christians must believe those things. He's talking here, though, about non-essentials. And the, the danger is that d differences over those non-essentials could divide the church. Okay, let me hit pause. Here's the hard thing for us. If I were to, to, to ask you as we sat down to have a cup of coffee, uh, what are some of the non-essential sorts of things that you think are, are at risk of dividing our church? I'm going to guess that not one of you would say, well, for me personally, it would be keeping kosher laws and the observance of Jewish festival days, right? Like that is a super big deal to me and in our church. Not the case, right? But here's the reality. We do have those things. And in the last couple of years, probably the, the, the two biggest would be how we should respond to COVID and the matter of politics. Who should a Christian vote for or not vote for? Uh, and, and those two issues in particular have divided churches all over the place. And they continue to do so. Here's the thing for us too, though. As we enter into a new building, there are going to be more of these kinds of differences of opinion that are going to arise. And they could be over really small things, like what are the, the programs of ministry that our church is going to have? You might have some expectation that we're going to do one thing. We might not end up doing that thing. Or what will our engagement in the community look like? What are the sorts of ministry partners that we want to uh, engage with? So there, there are all of these sorts of things that are, are, are secondary, non-essential matters. And what we've got to see is that division over those kinds of things will completely undercut our gospel culture as a church. It's those sorts of things that can compromise our witness. Because here's what can happen. If we're not careful, then the church can just become a place of only those people who voted a certain way or who only think a particular way about any number of different issues. And that's not what Paul calls us to here. So here's the question. How are we supposed to navigate those differences? What does Paul say to us? Let me uh, point out here what he doesn't say first. He doesn't say, we who are strong have an obligation to convince the weak that they're wrong, all right? Nor does he say, what you need to do is to do everything that you can to get your way and railroad everybody who disagrees with you. 
That's not what he says. Instead, he says that we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And failings there actually isn't a great translation. It really means something more like weakness. That's clearer in the middle of verse one. He says this, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So what what Paul is calling us to here is a completely different outlook than that which comes naturally to us. What he's saying is, yes, you disagree on these things. There's going to be disagreement, but the way to approach those differences is not to try to get everybody to agree with you all the time, which would be pretty pleasing, right? That's pleasing. Instead, it's asking this question. How can I build you up? How can I seek to do you good. And this is really what what Paul says in Philippians 2 as well. He says there to, to, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Now, Paul's not saying, don't ever talk about these points of disagreement and pretend like they don't really exist, okay? You gotta uh, think that, that in the early Roman church, these differences were getting talked about a lot, okay? But what he is saying is that our posture towards one another should be one of charity, of grace, of building one another up. Because that's what a gospel culture looks like. Now why, why why does Paul say this? He, He says this because this is what Jesus did. Verse three. For Christ did not please himself. He goes on to to quote Psalm 69. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's saying that even when Jesus suffered unjustly, he refused to please himself. That he is our example, which is what he now calls us to. So let me do this. Let me pan out for a second and ask this question. What does this say about our, our, our general expectations that we have for life in the church? Well, what it says to us is that we should expect, we should expect there to be differences of opinion amongst us. We should expect there to be disagreement on particular secondary issues within our church. And here's the thing. We actually, maybe I should just go first person on this. Uh, I actually hope that this happens more. Why would I say that? I say that because that would mean that we are actually reaching people in our city who are drastically different than we are. So that there becomes a diversity of opinion on these secondary, non-essential sorts of issues. And what we have the opportunity to do in that place is rather than bailing on one another, rather than fleeing and, and, and trying to find a place where everybody thinks exactly like me about everything, which is way easier, I instead am called to bear with my brothers and sisters where we seek to do one another good. We build one another up. We, we stay in close relationship with each other even when we disagree with each other. That's what the gospel does in a community. So that's what we're cultivating and maintaining and seeking to protect in our body. So that's one of the ways that, that Paul talks about uh, the, the maintaining this gospel culture. But he goes on then to say more about why that's possible. And he, it has, he says, everything to do with our unity 
in Christ. And so the second way we protect this gospel culture is by striving towards the unity that we have in Christ. By striving towards the unity that we have in Christ. And so uh, if you notice, he says this in something like a a form of a benediction. So verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So a couple things to notice about this verse. One is that he's praying that, that God is going to enable them to live in harmony. And I think that that image of harmony is really helpful. The, the original here says something more like uh, thinking similarly or thinking the same thing. But the ESV translation here of, of living in harmony gets at what's being said by Paul. So think about musical harmony uh, for a minute. So in harmony, I'm not a musician here, so bear with me, musicians, okay? Uh, but you have these multiple different parts that are being sung together, Right? different parts sung together, and so that what you hear are these distinct parts that all fit together, such that, that, that what you hear uh, are, is actually more beautiful together than these distinct voices were apart. That's a picture of what Paul's getting at here, that when, when Christians live together in harmony, which recognizes these very real differences, something beautiful happens. And the something beautiful that, that happens is that God's glory is put on display. Verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, another way to think about this uh, is that what Paul is calling us to here is, is to unity and not uniformity. And here's what I mean by that. Uniformity describes people who are exactly like one another where there is no difference uh, among anybody. So kids, uh, you, you can think about uh, the part in Toy Story where uh, Buzz Lightyear runs into all of the other Buzzes, right? And all of the Buzzes act alike. They speak the very same. They behave the same way. They look alike. They are exactly the same. That's uniformity. But unity, on the other hand, is something that acknowledges that there are real differences, but that there is something greater, something more important, something that that, that is more foundational that brings these people together. And what Paul says is that that something greater, that, that something that is more important, that something that is more foundational is Jesus himself. That's what he's saying at the end of verse five. He says we can live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. So what Paul's saying is that it's not our socioeconomic status or our level of education that are in, in which our unity is found. Our unity is, is not found in our politics or in our zip code. It's not found in our marital status, nor is it found in our race and ethnicity. Our unity as a church is found in Jesus himself. It's found in this, this beautiful, mystical reality that we who have put our faith in Christ are united to him now, and as such are united to one another. And so here's the incredible thing about this. What we now have in common in Jesus far surpasses any of these other differences that we might have with one another. That's the unity that we have in Jesus. And so the question is, how how can we practically pursue that sort of unity that we really have? 
And there are a lot of ways that we could answer that. We could say, I want to answer it this way. It's by keeping the main thing the main thing. It's by keeping Jesus and his gospel at the heart of everything that we do as a church. And this is what we've been trying to do for the last seven years as a church. And honestly, I think this is why, completely by God's grace, that we at Trinity didn't experience the kind of division during the last two years that so many churches have. And it's not because we as leaders always said and did the right things, because we didn't. And it's not because we as a church always agreed on every single one of these issues, because we didn't. It's because we had Jesus and his gospel at the center of who we are as a church. That he is the most important one. He is the one upon whom our life depends. And so here's, here's the call for us. As we follow him, as we continue to pursue him, as we continue to point one another to him, we can actually disagree on non-essentials. We can disagree on non-essentials and we can continue to genuinely love one another. We can stay in relationship with each other. But we've gotta keep Jesus central to our life together. So that's the second way. Thirdly and finally, uh, we protect our gospel culture by welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed you. By welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed you. So this is, this is the way Paul wraps up this section, verse seven. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so th this is sometimes translated as accept one another. That's way too weak though. Um, th th this word means something like taking someone in close to yourself or receiving somebody. And so what, what Paul is saying is that, that a gospel culture, a church in which the gospel has taken root, is a church that welcomes one another. Why? Well, because Christ has welcomed you. So think about this. How did Christ welcome you? Did he welcome you in a reluctant way that was sort of you know, under obligation that he had to sign up, kind of welcome you near to himself? No. Did he welcome you in a way that was more like toleration? Like I can sort of deal with you to a degree, but I'm gonna keep you distant. No. Jesus welcomed you with a full on embrace. He welcomed you with mercy with the open arms of grace and love. We sang this, uh, this line last week in uh, the song, His Mercy is More. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. He welcomes you right where you find yourself. That is our model for the way that we're to welcome one another. And so here, here's where we see something really important. Jesus isn't just our example of welcome. He is that, but he's so much more. He is the one who himself has welcomed us to himself. And he did this through his once for all work on our behalf on the cross. That's why he can call us to embody this welcome in our relationships with one another. So uh, let me do this very practically. Where, where are some areas where we could actually live into this reality together? One of the best places to do this to experience this kind of life together is in our community groups. So Mark just prayed about our community groups earlier. Community groups are a fantastic place 
for you to get to know other people in ways that go beyond just the cordialities after church. A place where you can pray with other people, a place where you can share burdens and celebrations together, a place where you can actually look at the scriptures together. And so um, if you're not yet in a community group, I would really encourage you to, to get in one. We're, they're about to start up this week. So if you've been around for a while and would like to get into an existing group, talk to Pastor Andy, uh, and he can get you squared away there. If you're new to Trinity, um, we're gonna be doing a newcomers community group at our house uh, for seven weeks this fall. More information about that in the bulletin. But the point is that that, that is a great avenue for us to experience this kind of life together. So... Um, let me, let me close with this. Um, it is really easy to hear all of this and on the one hand be excited about it because it's really easy to talk about. But then maybe you start thinking about the reality of what it could look like to genuinely love somebody with whom you have actual disagreement and it's really easy at that point to get very cynical and to start thinking like, oh, this sounds really great but it'll never work out in practice. In fact, it might even sound impossible. Here's what I want to say if that's where you feel uh, some tension, because I actually feel some tension there myself. Uh, I want to say this. If it were up to you and me alone, it would be impossible. But the great news of the Bible is that it's not just up to you and me. This is actually something that Jesus has accomplished by his death and resurrection. Paul says in Ephesians 2, that, that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has made us one. And that now his spirit has indwelt his church such that we can begin to live out and put on display the reality of our unity. And maybe most encouragingly, he's going to make this a reality. Here's what John says in Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is our future. And by God's grace, that can become a reality more and more right now in our present. That's the call. That's the invitation to us as a church. Let me pray that God would bring that about in us. Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who has lavished such grace upon us in and through your son. We thank you for the way in which he has welcomed us to himself, that he has shown us such grace and mercy. And Father, we pray that that would be our posture towards one another. Uh, Lord, we know that, that this would uh, really be impossible uh, if not for the work of your spirit among us. And so we pray that, that your spirit would work and that we would more and more embody this welcome. And we pray this all in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.